Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Uh, today we have a special guest, Tim Ward. Tim Ward is the co-owner of Intermedia Communications Training Inc., based in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. area. He works with global organizations helping them communicate better. He is a former print journalist and the author of 10 books, including the latest one, Pro-Truth, a practical plan for putting truth back into politics. And that's what we really want to get into. This is a book which has he co-authored with uh, Dr. Gleb uh, Sipersky, a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm going to want to hear a whole lot about that. Tim is also board member of www.protruth.org. He is the publisher of Change Ma uh, Changemaker's book and lives in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife and business partner, Teresa. Welcome aboard. Tim Ward, how are you doing today, my friend? Hey, thanks. I am doing so well. Thank you. I must say, the past couple of weeks, I've been breathing easier. Yes, I, a lot of people are breathing a lot easier right now, you know, um, and, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that has occurred over the last four years is the degradation of truth, more so than ever in my lifetime, and that's quite a few mm -hmm. decades. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, first of all? I totally agree. In fact, um, uh, we're seeing a lot right now about uh, the the ending end game of the Trump administration being these attacks on the institutions of uh, the election. You know, claiming massive fraud and really undermining the very systems that put democracy in place. Well, that's actually been going on for five years, and in attacking truth, in creating a post-truth presidency in which the president has lied more than 20,000 times, including about life and death issues around the coronavirus, let alone the, all the other things. He's actually attacked a fundamental institution and that is the trust between government and people. And this breakdown is, not, is, is terrible for any democracy. And this hasn't just happened in the United States. We've actually seen this happen in places like Turkey, Russia, Hungary, uh, other nations where we've seen authoritarian figures rise, and usually they rise on the back of lies. Now, What's been shocking is that that's happened here in the United States. That is, that is I, I want to pick up on that because we understand that all these other countries had those particular issues where dictators could come about, and even some of the European countries that are more Western, if you will. What's What's different here is we thought we were immune to it. We thought we had a sufficiently enlightened population uh, that these types of tactics would not work. Um, I, I want to ask a question. I don't know how much, I don't know if you get into issues like uh, the, the or documents like the Powell Manifesto that came about back early on and so forth. Do you or because I want to, okay. Um, what happened over the last several decades, and this is both in your lifetime and my lifetime, is somehow we gave the plausibility of both sides of issues. How does that affect the truth in your mind? And I want to do that before we go into the neuro part of how people's minds sure, work. Sure, sure. Um, you know, there's a name for this cognitive bias. It's called false equivalence. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the media has been doing that uh, too, too, way, too, way too much. So False equivalence is the idea that there's two sides to every story. Now, in journalism, that means um, 
let's see, you're interviewing somebody who's a client scientist and they say, you know, we urgently need to act on what the science is telling us and change our carbon emissions. Well, then you go to a climate denier and he says, well, climate change is a hoax. It's just made up by a bunch of scientists to fool people. Well, if you cover both sides of those stories as if they're equivalent, yes, you're covering two different perspectives, but one is actually false and the other is actually true. That's why false equivalents can actually create very misleading scenarios. I remember really well a, a skit in the John Oliver's show um, where he said, if journalists actually covered things according to uh, how many people there are on these different sides, then in climate science, you then have saw this room with 97 client scientists shouting about the reality of climate change. And then the other side, there were three people paid by industry saying, well, we're not really so sure it's, it's real. But false equivalence gives equal weight to very, very different realities. And it's, it's a, it seriously distorts our senses of, of truth, especially when special interests like the fossil fuel industry have been paying scientists to basically put out research that is in fact false. The same playbook that was used by the cigarette companies to undermine claims that smoking caused cancer. Exact same playbook. Interesting, the document that I was talking about before, that's, that's pretty much what they do. I mean, we get, we get a lot of these, uh, these think tanks out there that their, their sole purpose in life is to create plausibility for a false tenant. And what's right. interesting is that this was by design. Uh, you know, America has been, Americans in general, uh, since the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, we've been getting all more intelligent. That's the truth we have been getting much more intelligent in, in, in because of school and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my, my thing is, isn't, isn't it true that the initially how journalism was taught dictated that behavior? What, but journalism was taught, dictated hearing more than one perspective and not believing that one side had all the answers. Sadly, with the rise of the internet, which in many ways is a good thing, journalism's finances have just crashed, as I'm sure you know, sure you well know. And so the resources that a newspaper or a, a, a show used to have to fact checking to really find out what were the valid perspectives that deserves to be heard, that all really crumbled. And so journalism often became just covering what two people shouting at each other said. He said, she said, rather than the facts behind what was said. And that's why false equivalents really came to the fore because it, you didn't have the time to really check that you had gotten the best perspectives. Yes, you need different perspectives, but somebody who's just paid to spout a lie, that's not actually informing the public. So that's where journalism has really taken a, a wrong course. And then social media, of course, amplifies the distortions even more where people can only listen to the false perspectives. So we've really found ourselves in a dangerous path away from truth which is one of the things that pro-truth is all about. It's helping people reaffirm their, the truth matters. I may have to correct some of the things that I say sometimes um, if I'm to take what you're to say. So I just want to, I want to kind of clarify on this. Uh, you're, you, I think you're saying that uh, real journalism, which I like, I like to call real journalism the one that fact checks appropriately. Yeah, right. But uh, many times I would hear journalists say, they're stepping out of journalism when they take a side. In other words, they, they claim to have to put out what he said, 
put out what he said, put out what she said, put out what she said. Uh, I think on the, what you're saying, that is really not uh, 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 journalism. Journalism requires additional uh, fact-checking thought process from absolute sources. Yeah, so when you, from absolute sources, from, uh, from well-informed sources, I mean, there's, um, well, if I can go back to climate change just for a sec, there are many different perspectives on the exactness of certain technical issues and on how to deal with it. Do you do, you know, carbon taxes? Do you do, you know, drawdowns? Do you allow for offsets? There's actually lots of informed perspectives that are very different that need to be heard. But then there are a lot of people who are deliberately misinforming or simply are what you could call willfully ignorant. Do they deserve to be covered in an article about the issue? Frankly, no. But unless you're informed enough to tell which are the voices that need to be reported, you can't do that job properly. Yesterday, I did a blog, Fox News. Uh, Steve Ducci came on TV and he finally released, uh, he said, oh, I read this document uh, that pointed out that Kansas, when they went ahead and put on their mask mandate, it wasn't, every county did not have to follow it, but the counties that followed the mask mandate, their COVID exposure, COVID infections went way down, and those who didn't follow it, their COVID infections went way up. And when one of the other journalists or the other people on the bench or the, or the couch said something as far, yes, I guess you have to be careful, he, came, he simply came back and said, no, masks work. So this is the first time Fox, on Fox News, instead of playing the game of uh, the mask being an ideological or political issue, they made it a health issue and says, no, mask works. I guess they know what's about to happen. <laughs> I think, and, and you correct me here, I think that was journalistic malpractice what uh, Fox News was doing. I also think that a large percentage of the 260,000 people that, are, that died are the responsibility of all those people who were putting out knowingly information just for a quick buck, uh, yeah. a, a quick buck. What do we do? Uh, when we have institutions like that. In other words, Fox News is not going to pay a price. How do we allow our own free airwaves that belongs to us all to be used in mm -hmm. that manner with no repercussion after they've killed that many people? Yeah, that is a question. <laughs> really, we need to be asking ourselves both as citizens and in government and, and in the media. Um, I don't have an easy answer for that. I do think that there is a role for government in regulating deliberate misinformation. And I think that there's an important opportunity for citizens to realize that false information can kill you. And that what some networks, and not just Fox, what, what some networks and news outlets have been doing is grossly irresponsible, as irresponsible as if they were saying, inject bleach into your, into your system, right? Um, now, frankly, you could also say that when mainstream media and when even Twitter simply reports what the president has said or what those supporting him have said, simply reports, oh, the, you know, this person said masks don't help you or this person, 
you know, said it's against my individual liberty to wear a mask. If they boldly report that without analysis that really reveals the actual scientific evidence at the time, that's also problematic. I mean, so it's, journalism has been able to step away from accountability for the truth to simply feeling if we report what people said, our job is done. And social media, I mean, Twitter is now putting labels on deliberately mis deliberate misinformation that make you question it, but they're still putting it out there. And I think that is an ethical issue that we as a society have to figure out. How much regulation do you have to do? Frankly, I wish the media would not report tweets. I don't think tweets are news unless we've made a decision that what the president tweets is policy, then it's news. Otherwise, it can just be slander. I think actually, I think that is, that would be a good, I don't like the middle, but that would be a good middle ground. Uh, simply that we social media is not what's reported unless it is policy. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah. um, Tim, you wrote a book along with uh, Dr. Gleb uh, Sapersky called Pro-Truth, A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics. And there's the book. And not to worry, we're going to have that book on the screen as well when we, <laughs> okay. when we process this video. Um, but um, first of all, I, I think you are a board member of that uh, website, uh, protruth.org. And let me just let you know that politicsdoneright.com and egbertowillies.com was one of the first signer-ons onto that website. Didn't know it was you or anything, but uh, we so believe in the truth that when we saw something like that come about, we wanted to be there as well. So we signed the pledge that you guys put out mm -hmm. and, and the works, because I think that was a good move on, on y'all's part. Tell us a little bit about the book, first of all. So... Um... When Dr. Spursky and I met each other, we like really had this meeting of minds. Truth has mattered to both of us for, for much of our, our lives. His work with the Pro-Truth Pledge was fantastic. I wanted to put out a book that specifically addressed post-truth politics and how a pro-truth movement could be a pushback on it. And really it was to my delight to discover that that was his vision that he was already doing it. I come at it from a communications and journalism angle. He comes at it as a hard scientists looking at cognitive biases and what changes human behavior. And so we each brought our strengths together in this book. It's primarily meant to be a handbook for helping people resist the deceptions of politicians. You know, lies aren't just random things. Lies are often carefully crafted to deliberately mislead somebody by telling them what they want to hear or what they're afraid might be true. And so learning the different tricks that politicians use and some jujitsu-like mental moves we can apply to become resistant to those lies, even actually push back effectively against them is the heart of the book. And then the second part is about doing that on social media. So you're not just making yourself safer, you're cleansing your bubble, right? And you're spreading better practices throughout social media, which is really what the Pro-Truth Pledge is all about. Give me some examples as you see it that um, people use. You know, I, I always talk about um, in, on my show uh, the carnality of the human and people use our basal instincts to actually get us to do things we otherwise wouldn't have. I don't yeah. know if you remember that test where inflicting pain or, or shock on somebody. Uh, there are a lot of these types of experiments that people have 
shown where good people do bad things. So one of my yeah. tenets on my show is every I consider all people sans politicians good people. And I try to talk to all good people, meaning left, right, anarchists, uh, whatever they are, uh, right-wingers, conservatives, I try to give them the dignity of their humanity and right. talk to them. And um, tell me now from the reference point of your book, how is it that you get to that? To the dignity of, uh, of humanity? Uh, I mean, yeah, because yeah. you already stated and, and you already stated that people undermine our humanity and in effect they undermine our humanity when they use our fears or all these other issues to make us do things we otherwise would not or believe things we otherwise would not yeah so i would i would say that that humanity comes back to the possibility that we have to create trust and one of the truly remarkable things about a democracy and really an amazing thing about the experiment that is the United States is it was based around people with very different political views, different religious views, different views of what was right and wrong, coming together and forming a government that could work together and compromise. Essentially, that compromise was an idea that there was a common understanding of reality, a common set of facts. So people with strongly different values could look at those common facts, could share their opinions and find policies that they could make that they could agree to all be governed by. Truly incredible. So when you attack truth, you attack the one fundamental, that common reality of facts that allowed those different perspectives to sit around a table. So that's why, you know, a common respect for the truth, a common willingness to say, okay, you may have a very different set of values than I do, but we can agree on what the facts are. So let's find a way that we can then compromise and you can get enough of what you want and I can get enough of what I want that our communities can move forward. Let me ask you uh, that. Let me just say, say one more thing on yeah, that. Go ahead. When that breaks down, then it just becomes me yelling what my leader says is true and you yelling what your leader says is true and whoever's the best liar and whoever's group yells loudest wins. That is democracy. That leads either to authoritarianism or anarchy. And that's the precipice on which the United States has just taken a step back from. Yes. I, I love the way you say that. That's the precipice that we've just stepped back from, which is so true. Um, or let, let me ask, let me see if I can come up with an issue that you're familiar with yeah. that we know is in dispute right now, that uh, how you would handle it. And if, if, it, if you're not sufficiently familiar with the issue, just tell me to move on and we'll go to another one. Sure. Medicare for all. Um, okay, shoot. No, no, no. The reason I, I, I'm just putting the issue out here and I want you to uh, take the sides, both sides. Right, right. So um, the debate around Medicare for all is, can we afford it? Which is a value judgment, right? I mean, obviously we can afford a uh, trillion dollars a year for the Department of Defense, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So can we afford it is a value judgment. You need to take a look at the facts and having all of those facts on the table would mean admitting a lot of things that frankly, both to the right and left, there, there are difficulties in admitting. Uh, first of all, it would mean admitting every other advanced democracy in the world has the equivalent of Medicare for all. 
it would mean admitting that what the United States actually has been following is a policy of health insurance as opposed to health care. There's no health insurance in Canada where I'm from or the United Kingdom. There's health care, right? You pay your taxes for health care. Everybody's covered, so there's no need for insurance. That's a huge difference from just playing the structural way that we that we do it. But the question is, should we pay for it collectively? There are some things to consider. One is, do people want to only feel that their health care is their responsibility, not the responsibility of their community, of their collective? That's a moral, that's a moral choice. It's not one that you can say there's a right or wrong answer to. Uh, oh. And it might well be that enough people don't want to ever be thought to be paying for their neighbors have health insurance, that there's a legitimate reason to say no. But they should know what they're saying no to. They should also know what the costs are. Most Americans are, are not accurately informed about two things. They don't know how much more expensive their health care is than any other advanced nation. And they also don't know that the quality of health care is not as significantly better then they often believe it is without really seeing the facts. So how do you set those facts out for people so that they can really evaluate whether or not they're getting a good deal from their healthcare? And I think that is where your uh, book comes in, right? Uh, l let's put it this way. If one is told the truth about uh, where most of people's monies go when it comes to healthcare in the United States, uh, one would think that practically everyone except stakeholders in the money-making machine portion would want to have some sort of universal health care like the rest of the world, right? So, I mean, isn't that where if what you place in your book is effective, the kinds of policies that really better most Americans mm -hmm. would be realized? Well, um, I, I would say you do need to have the facts laid out clearly and plainly, which is not what vested interests want to do. So you have misinformation in there. You don't really have clarity. And sadly, because you also have healthcare companies giving lots of political donations, you don't have those in, in political positions of power really interested in just laying out the facts. Tim, I want people on the left, people on the right, people in the middle, people nowhere to get this book because I think um, most since it, it helps folks on, on social media, it helps folks with real media, give, tell them why they need to read this type of book and specifically pro-truth. Yeah, there's two types of people who should read this book. First, there are people who already intuitively feel that truth is a value and that truth matters in politics. Now, some people don't necessarily know that's them. So I would ask your, um, your, your listeners and viewers, uh, would you be comfortable if you knew your doctor was lying to you about your health? Would you feel comfortable if you knew your business partner or one of your employees was lying chronically about your business? And would you be okay with it if you actually knew that your spouse was lying to you about where his, he or she were in evenings when they were, when they were out? Most of us would not feel comfortable and yet we feel comfortable with the idea that politicians lie. They're the ones that are determining national policies that actually really affect our lives. So I don't think we would put up with people lying if we really got it, the politicians 
uh, affected us as much as our spouses, our doctors, and our business partners were. So I'll bet you a lot of people don't realize just how much they value truth in their own life. They should value it politically. But then there's a bunch of people who maybe they don't really know whether or not truth matters. Our book is good for them because it makes the case that truth is essential in a democracy. And if you lose that bedrock of truth, then you end up with corruption, incompetence, and rising authoritarianism. Look at the last four years. That's what we got. And then look beyond it to where Russia is today, where countries like Pakistan and Turkey and Iran are, where truth is not allowed to flourish. It's not pretty. And that's where we head if we don't make truth a political value. Tim, what question do you, did you wish that I would have asked that I didn't ask? Mm. What exactly can individuals do to improve their social media bubble? So answer it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where the pro-truth pledge is really important. The pro-truth pledge are 12 behaviors that when you sign the pledge, you voluntarily agree you will follow that will greatly clean the filter in your own media bubble or your own social media bubble, and then pass those good behaviors on to others. At the heart of it, it's don't pass stuff on unless you fact check it to make sure it's not misinformation. This means you have to realize that massive amounts of time and money are being poured into creating misinformation deliberately to fool you. Only a naive fool believes that everything that crosses their desk, their, their social media desktop is information to share. Much of it is being designed to lead you into error because you'll click on it, you'll share it, you'll spread it. It's politics, it's foreign powers, and it's commercial interests. So now, fact check. I, I just want to say, folks, to, the, to our audience, I signed the pro-truth pledge at protruthpledge.org uh, very soon after they became something. I, I, I just saw the benefit of doing that, and I, I, I was one of the mm -hmm. early ones to sign up. So, folks, go do it, protruthpledge.org. Tim Ward, author of Pro Truth, A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics. It was my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. Thank you so kindly for having been here. Thank you, and thank you for signing the pledge. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.